while they're leaving, if you'll turn to James. If you, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the front. James is uh, towards the end of, of that Bible. We started a few weeks ago uh, through a verse-by-verse study in the book of James, and I pray that's been encouraging and, and challenging at the same time. And today we are going to look at verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1. So James chapter 1. And let me, let me read this while you're, while you're turning. I'll, I'll, I'll read this passage for us. Again, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible there. Uh, but James writes in, in chapter 1, verse 9, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and the withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would take your be, have the boldness to take your word and follow it as far as it takes us but lord we'd have the wisdom to not take it any farther any further than what you take us now lord i pray that we would not be men and women who look at the word see what it says and then walk away and forget what it says lord help us to be doers of the word and not simply hearers as we will see in a few weeks And Lord, I pray that we would again look at life, look at one another's through the lens of the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done in his taking on humanity, living a perfect sinless life, dying on a cross, the death of a criminal, being buried, but yet three days later being raised victoriously over the grave, conquering sin, conquering death. Lord, help us to uh, look at life through that lens and not through the lens of the world. And Lord, give us the wisdom that the gospel provides that we would live by what is not seen over what is seen. And Lord, we would be willing to lay down our lives for one another as you have done for us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we have spent the last couple weeks looking uh, at the first eight verses of James, and we have seen uh, how God uses trials to mature us. God uses trials to mature us, and he mature, we've said that He matures our faith through trials. We, we've seen that He matures our endurance through trials. We've seen that He matures our reliance and our dependence upon Him. And lastly, we, last week we saw how He also matures our prayer life and gives depth to, depth to our prayer life. And, and it would seem in turning to wealth and poverty in verse 9 through 12, really, we have to keep in mind that James has not changed subjects here. He's continuing the same walk. He's continuing the same theme of trials, of wisdom in trials. We've seen how what we need is, is godly wisdom. We need the wisdom of the gospel over the wisdom of the world. We need to live our lives in accordance to that which is the gospel. Sacrificial mercy we've seen, not according to the ways of the flesh and the ways of the world. And there are competing wisdoms. And even what we'll see today, God is calling on brothers and, and sisters in humble circumstances to understand their, their, their glorification one day. And He's calling on brothers and sisters in in very enrich brothers and sisters to glory in their humiliation, not to trust in their, in their riches. And again, that's not the way the world thinks. That wisdom is completely opposite to the way the world thinks. And, and again, James has not changed subjects here. He's talking, he's continuing his study, he's continuing teaching us a right theology of trials. And, and listen, in the culture in which James writes, in a Jewish culture, remember he wrote, he's writing to Jewish believers who have been dispersed, they've been scattered all over. And in the Jewish mind, wealth was the measure of someone's godliness. Wealth. And if we're honest, that same theology prospers today. The person of very great means, certainly God must bless them, certainly they must be doing everything right. The person of humble means, you, your, your flesh thinks, well, 
Certainly they're doing something wrong. Certainly, certainly. We, we've seen it in John 9, the man born blind, the disciples, the, everyone said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his family? And Jesus said, they, they equated bad circumstances. They equated blindness with sin. And what did Jesus say? No one sinned. This man was born blind for such a purpose as this. God is getting great glory. He was born blind so I could show my power right here today through his blindness. Even in Job, Job's family is destroyed, his riches, everything. What did his friends? They assume, Job, just repent. Certainly there's sin involved here. Certainly you're sinning. The reality is he was a sinner. We're sinners. But that wasn't the purpose behind the trials. And in James' day, the godly were expected to prosper. The wicked were expected to suffer. If you read Proverbs, that's the writers of Proverbs. They're struggling with why are the, why are the wicked prospering? Why aren't the wicked suffering? And that's just how gracious a God we serve. But in their day, in their culture, the rich prospered, the, 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 the godly prospered, the ungodly didn't prosper. That was their mindset. That's why in the story of Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that's why it was so shocking to the Jews who heard it. And what James indicates here is, listen, your wealth or your lack of wealth has no indication, it has no barometer on your godliness. Even though you have riches, that doesn't mean that you're godly. Even though you don't have riches, that doesn't mean that you're ungodly. And note James is clear. He, there will be rich and there will be poor amongst the people of God. He's not trying to level the playing field that way. He is leveled with playing, leveling the playing field sp spiritually, but not economically. Both of them, both the poor and both the rich were exhorted here. They're being exhorted to respond to their circumstances in a godly fashion, with godly wisdom. And as we'll see, we would clearly say, you know what, going without being poor, that would be a trial. Having a lot, well, if that's a trial, bring it on. You know, if we're honest. But as we'll see from Philippians 4, Paul says, I've learned how to get along with nothing, and I've learned the secret to getting along with a lot. Having a lot, the Bible is very clear, having a lot which most of us in this room compared to the rest of the world would fall into that category, having a lot. I got friends that I can compare myself to and I can look real poor. But the reality is, I'm very rich. And before you start thinking, man, how much do they pay the pastor? You're very rich. You're very rich. In a few months, we're going to take 34 people from this congregation to the Dominican. You're going to find out in about two seconds when you get off that plane how rich you are. Two seconds. So hear me. In light of the gospel, consider how rich we are. But James, is, he's, he's commanding, exhorting both. Respond to wherever you find yourself in a godly fashion. Look through wherever you find yourself through godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. He, he does not, James does not accept the premise, he does not accept the theology that the godly prosper and the wicked suffer. Guess what? The godly suffer. And the, and the poor suffer. And the ungodly. We live, in a, we live in a fallen world, and that's what James is saying. Endure. Endure. And, and main point, you see it on your handout, main point, and then we're going to make some, some points that, that fall under that and hopefully support that main point. But the main point I want you to walk away from here today from our text is this, is that we do not, our va we do not find our value... We do not find our value in the way that the world sees us. But rather, we find our value in how Christ sees us and what the gospel declares over us. I, I don't get my value over what the world says about me. I don't measure myself against the world's standards. I measure myself according to what the gospel declares about me and what Jesus Christ has declared over me through the gospel. And that's what James is getting to here. Again, we have to look at all of life. No matter where we find ourselves, we have to look at that through the lens of the gospel. My flesh is going to fight that. The way, the, world, the way of the world is going to fight that. They're going to try to, it's going to try to get me to look at things through the flesh, through the ways of the world, through the lens of the world. And James is saying, don't do it. You're going to get a distorted view. It's like looking through those glasses, through those, the other day, my daughter 
thought was walking around and she said, you like my sunglasses? They were 3D glasses that she had found. She's like, why is everything blurry? Why is everything, these sunglasses? No, because they're 3D glasses. See, that's the way the world, in a sense, the world, if we look at things through the world and not the gospel, our, our vision is distorted. The way we look at the world becomes very distorted. We need to take those glasses off and we need to put on the glasses of the gospel. So we look in view, we look at ourselves, we look at others, at how Jesus looks at us. And that's what, that's what James is doing here. And specifically, he's saying, hey, you look at your circumstances through the lens of the gospel. You hold your life up to the gospel. And James, he, he, he's going to speak to here. The first thing you see on your handout is really a, a two-pronged vision here, a two-pronged view and how trials mature our faith. And the first thing he says in verses 9 to 11 is this, that trials mature our earthly perspective on things. This thing's beeping. I hope that's not bad. Oh, well. There we go. If you know how much I love ancillary noises, that, that'd be bothering. <laughs> Trials mature our earthly perspective on things. I guess that means I'm done. Somebody rigged that. Somebody from the church rigged that. I know what y'all did. <laughs> Saturday morning, we had no baseball, and uh, we had visions of sleeping in and uh, not getting up to an alarm clock, and at 4.45, our smoke alarm went off. That's a blessing right there. That is a blessing. We, we realized real quick that if our, if our house chest is on fire, we're all dying because we had no plan. We all ran into the living room. We're like looking around. What do we do? What do we do? I'm like, Karen, go in that room and see if you smell anything. Go in that room. I got the kids. I got the kids. So it went off and it turned off on its own. And then so we go back to bed. Our heart stops pounding finally. You go back to bed. At 645, it did the same thing. So I just took all the smoke detectors out of our house and said, forget it. <laughs> I like my sleep better. So no, I put new batteries in them. I was a good husband. But in this section, James is saying, look at your circumstances. It, it may seem odd on the surface that James would address poverty and riches in this section. It would seem odd on the surface you know, James just throws it in there. He talks about worldly wisdom and godly wisdom in verses 5 through 8, being a double-minded man, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he starts talking about poverty and riches. And, on, and again, on the surface, James just kind of throws it in there. He just kind of just tosses it in there. But listen, what James is saying has tremendous relevance to trials. What James is saying has tremendous relevance to circumstances. It has tremendous relevance to a group of Jewish People who are scattered, again, some of you in this room today came in here today and you are scattered, if you're honest. You may be scattered financially, scattered emotionally, scattered physically, scattered mentally. James is saying endure. And he, he's, he has great relevance to the circumstances that the Jews that he's writing to would have found themselves. Imagine all of a sudden if somebody just came in and you had to just pick up your family and leave. That, that's the way we felt Saturday morning at 4.45. You, you get that saying of, what do I grab? If this house is on fire, what do I get? What do I do? We felt very scattered until the alarm shut off and we realized it was false alarm. But, but that's these, all of a sudden they're scattered. And listen, many if not most of James's audience would have been poor. But some certainly would have had wealth. But most would be poor. And what James offers here is another piece of the puzzle, if you will, regarding joy and trials. We, we saw in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We said various there is a wide net. He doesn't limit it. He's talking about whatever trial you're going through. Poverty and riches would have fallen into that category. They found themselves in poverty. They found themselves in trial and in riches. And this is another piece of the puzzle. James is offering a, a nugget of spiritual truth here to believers who are being tested. They're being tried. And James knows full well in order to maintain joy, in order to persevere, in order to endure, believers need a right attitude towards their stuff towards their riches. If they're going to endure, if they're going to persevere, if they're going to hang in there, if they're going to have joy, because let's be honest, stuff 
We're, we're usually pretty good as long as there, we got our stuff and as long as we got some money in the bank account, as long as bills are paid, we're good. You know why? Because we're trusting in stuff. Because we have physical evidence that, hey, no matter what happens to me, I got stuff. James is writing to a group of people that didn't have a 401k. They didn't have a savings account. They didn't have insurance, all this stuff. And he's saying, consider it all joy, have the right attitude. And, and this is the key. That's the key point here about attitude. It's, it's not the absence or presence of stuff that is the issue. It's the response to the stuff that is the issue. It's not the circumstance. It's our response to the circumstance. That's what James is getting down to. It's our response. It's our attitude. James is dealing with our attitude towards stuff, our attitude towards the riches. The riches aren't the problem, or the lack of riches aren't the problem. It's our attitude that's the problem. Because how we respond to, to stuff, or how we respond to a lack of stuff, oftentimes is a good barometer of our faith. It is a good measuring stick to what we're really trusting in. To what we're really trusting in. Are, are we truly trusting in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that He's sufficient? Or are we trusting in stuff? And again, that's what we said about trials. Trials reveal, they're like a little warning light on the dashboard. That little warning light comes on on your dashboard and it tells you, hey, you don't realize it, but you got a problem. Whether it's your oil, whether it's your engine, whether it's your tire pressure, you got a problem. You may not know it, you may not sense it, you may not realize it right now, but I'm warning you, you got a problem. And the engine and that whole mechanism, that's the heart of your car. If it ain't right, it don't work. And what James is getting at is to the heart here. Trials, these things, they reveal heart issues. It's God's gracious way of just revealing, Chris, you got a heart issue. Chris, you got a trust issue. And the Jews, again, they equated stuff with blessing. They equated lack of stuff with judgment. And again, James is correcting their theology. That, that's what we said with James. I don't believe what James is dealing with is whether you have faith or not. He's writing to believers. The, what he's dealing with in James is he's correcting the theology of their faith. He's giving them a pure faith. Again, and you see that in chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. They had faith in Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. See, they've mixed in that which is incorrect with that which is correct. So they've, they, they've polluted their theology. They've got bad theology. The reality is, is every believer in this room today has holes in their theology. The problem is I, we don't know where they are. Or we correct them. And they've added to their faith, they've taken in a worldly philosophy that says, hey, serve the rich, because clearly God loves the rich, so let's be favorites to the rich because they can help us. And James is saying, that's bad theology. You didn't get that from your Lord. The world would say, hey, Chris, do whatever it is to be happy. You just be happy. God is most interested in your happiness. That's a false theology that's crept into my real theology of Jesus Christ. He's not interested in my happiness. It's just in my holiness. He's interested in that I look like him. And again, James is not, he's talking about attitude here. He's not trying to eliminate the differences between the poor and the rich. He's not at all condemning the rich. He's not saying you're wrong if you're rich. He's not scolding the poor either, saying, you know what, if you guys worked harder, if you weren't lazy, if you weren't, all the things when we see people of humble circumstances, all the things that our flesh oftentimes will think about them. James doesn't go there. He's not saying you're wrong if you're rich. He's not scolding you if you're poor. What he is doing is helping them to understand their equality based on Christ, based on the work of Christ, based on their faith in Christ. What James is seeking to do is that, that these believers would have a right attitude towards their circumstances. And that's what he's teaching us. No matter where you find yourself, have a right attitude to your circumstances. He, he's saying, view your circumstances rightly through faith. Through faith. And James does that twofold. First, he addresses the poor. He says, hey, this is the attitude of the poor. And again, that would have been the, the 
the majority of who he's writing to would have found themselves in this category. And James says, the poor brother is to glory in their condition. Think about that. When you go through hard times, when those big bills hit and they, they rock your finances and the economy and the stock market and all that stuff, do you glory in that condition? The, the word here, don't, don't diminish that word. The word here literally is a good sense of pride. Have pride. Have pride in your, in your condition. That's what, literally what James is saying, a good sense of pride. In some places, that word there is translated to exalt. It's a word that deals with both our inward and our outward reaction. It's, a, it's an attitude. You, you look at Luke 6.20, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Exalt. Exalt in your high position. James, no, James does not, this is not mind games. This isn't just pretending James is saying, no, you look at your condition as it really is, and, and you understand your Savior. You understand the position that you're in. You understand the love that He has for you. And again, this is so contrary. When, when things hit us, we walk around in such a way so everybody knows that we're going through a trial. This is not like Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. Woe is me. You know, it's just... I'm in a bad... No, he's saying don't act like that. Exalt in your position. Why? Because that's not an accurate representation of the gospel. Walk around with your head hung down and, and, and your lip puffed out and woe is me. What, what does that tell the world about the provision of our Father? It sends an inaccurate picture of our Father. Is He a God who provides no matter what or is He not? Is he a good father? No matter. It would be like Bradley or Sarah Grace walking around school. I don't have this and I don't have that. You know what those kids at school are think? Karen and I are morons. We're terrible parents. Our attitude, your attitude, reflects not only upon us, but it reflects on our Heavenly Father. And James is saying walking around in that way, walking around with that attitude is not accurate. It's not an accurate picture of Christianity. And doing this, taking pride in being low, taking pride in not having the worldly goods, shows that we value what God values, not that we value what the world values. We value what God values. And that is the point behind what James is saying here. We don't judge people or give people status based on wealth because God doesn't either. He doesn't do that either. And, and James is saying... Poor brother, recognize your high position in Christ. And that's what it all goes back to. In Christ, you have immeasurable riches. In Christ, you have an inheritance that will not pay, fade away. In Christ, you have eternal life secured. In, rice, in Christ, you have adoption. In Christ, you have redemption. In Christ, you have forgiveness. In Christ, you have immeasurable riches that the world will never touch. He's calling upon them to recall who they are in Christ. This is a... As we saw in Deuteronomy, we just finished the book of Deuteronomy. It's a call to remember who you are in Christ. To tie it in with the context, it's a call to allow wisdom to open their eyes to the spiritual heights to which the gospel had taken them. They were not what they appeared to be on an earthly level because they were believers. They were beyond that. They had been exalted way beyond that. They were loved, they were cherished, they were known by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's saying, live like it. You've been redeemed, forgiven, justified, you will be glorified, live like it. An attitude. And what James is saying is look at yourself through the lens of the gospel. Reader, look at yourself through the lens of the gospel, not, not through the lens of the flesh, and not, not by what is only what is seen. Look at yourself through what is unseen. You may be poor, you may be looked down upon by the world, you may be considered a nobody, but in the eyes of God, you're His child. You're His child. And parents, you understand that. At the end of the day, good or bad, that's your child. And you love them. And God, Paul, James is saying, one of those writers, James is saying, look at yourself through the lens of the gospel. Go back to the gospel. We have a secure, sure future. Remind yourself daily 
of God's favor toward you. Remind yourself daily, moment by moment, of His love for you. And that will lift you on high because He has lifted you on high through the gospel. It's looking beyond what is seen to what is unseen. It's, it's our exaltation with Christ. Ultimately, what God has in store for us is beyond compare, and it will override our present circumstances. Even the gospel reinterprets our present circumstances. It's like a translator. And as a believer, what James is saying is you possess more spiritual riches that, that will more than counterbalance where you find yourself today. But consider it true. That, that's why Paul says in, in, in Philippians 4, we, we shared it earlier, but he says, I have learned the secret. He says, if I can find it. It's before Colossians, that's my problem. He says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Literally what Paul is saying is, I've learned the secret so I can do all these things. Paul walked through those. These were not hypothetical things. He learned how to honor God and glorify God and trust God in, in going hungry. And he learned in suffering need. He learned how to glorify God. He learned it. And, and so, but not only, so it's not only looking at yourself, James, deal with through the lens of the gospel. But I think James is making a broader picture that we would look at others through the lens of the gospel. It's one thing to look at yourself, but look at one another through the lens of the gospel. James completely, notice, he completely accepts the poor believer as a worthy member, an honorable member of the family of God. He doesn't relegate them to a lower status. He does it later on in chapter 2, as we say, they were giving the best seats to the rich. They were giving the, poor, the bad seats to the poor. And James is saying that's wrong. Why? Because that is not accurate faith. That is not how your father, your heavenly father, views us. And James says the poor are absolutely 100% a member of the Christian brotherhood. 100% in spite of their circumstances. This is a brother. But he says in verse 9, but the brother of humble circumstances. This is a believer. They're family. James knew at the time he was writing that the church was made up of mainly poor, oppressed believers and James is calling them to look beyond their circumstances but he's calling others to look beyond their circumstances as well and view them not only themselves but others view one another through the lens of the gospel and he's calling on the body of Christ to freely and readily accept one another poor rich accept them as a full-fledged member of Christ, if they believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if they've repented of their sins, if they've called upon the name of the Lord, they're in. And, and what James is saying and what we've got to walk away from here is understanding is how we accept people who are different from us, whether it's social, racial, whether it's material, whether it's economic, whether it's a disability, anything. The world takes notice. I, I was reminded of this um, over the past seven weeks, uh, we, I coached my son's baseball team. And uh, I would go pick up one of, the, one of the players on the team because it was a 5 o'clock practice and, and take him to practice. And first time I went to get him on this road, the traffic is backed up. And... Uh, I remember thinking, you know, I'm not very patient at all times. I was probably running late. I'm worried about getting to practice the first day, dot, dot, And the bus is just sitting there. It's sitting there. It's sitting there. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Get off the bus. Let's go. Well, then the back doors on the side of the bus opened up, and a, a little girl, they push her out of a wheelchair, and mom comes up. And I felt like, an, I mean, I felt awful. But listen, every day, for, it didn't matter how, it seemed, Part of my flesh is like, man, if I leave earlier, I can miss the bus and get ahead of the bus. But every single day, every single Thursday for seven weeks, every single Thursday, I would be the car. I would drive up to this and the bus would go in front of me and I would turn behind it and I would sit there and I would wait. And God taught me a lot about myself while I sat there and wait. Every single day for seven weeks, I would sit there in my car and I would pray for that little girl. I would talk to my son about that little girl. 
She couldn't even lift her head up. I would just sit there in my car just weeping for the family. I have two little ones. They're, by God's grace, healthy. But, but what is my attitude towards them? What's my attitude? Every day they live a life that I don't know nothing, of, I know nothing about. But how do we view people who are different than us? How do, we, how do we handle, do we love people that are different from us? Do we shy away from people that are different from us? The gospel is at stake here. The gospel is at stake at how we view people that are different from us. I, I remember standing out there one, one Saturday morning in the food pantry. I, I happened to be there that day. And you remember, some of you remember David. He, he used to live down the street and would come and was a part here. Now he lives in St. Pete. I remember his boss brought him to the food pantry. And, and I'm grateful for Monica and Ronnie. And they're, they're the pictures of loving people that are different. Nobody does a better job at the food pantry than Ronnie and Monica Moses. They, they, love, they love, you go there and you're humbled by how those two love people that are different. And they're, an, they're a picture of this. But I remember that lady dropped him off and she grabbed me and she says, why do you, why do you care about David? Why do you guys care about David? He's not like you. He's got nothing to offer you. Why, why do y'all lo-? She was blown away that we would love him. That we would care for him in such a way that he would be eager to come here. And I said, ma'am, that's the point. See, every single one of us, in, in God's eyes, we were David. When you look at ourselves through the lens of the gospel, we were David. We were needy. We had nothing to offer God, and yet He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us that we would become His children. And I got a chance there to share the gospel, but I was grateful as a pastor that she would see that in a church. That they would love people that look different, that act different. And the gospel, listen to me, the gospel changes everything. That's what James is saying. The gospel humbles all of us. There is no pride at the foot of the cross. In the shout of a Christ, the cross, there is no pride. There is gratefulness and there is humility. And what James is saying is no matter what, you treat others the way that Christ has treated us. No matter what, your attitude ought to be through difficult circumstances of your own or through difficult circumstances that others are going through. You look at them through the lens of the gospel and you have joy. That our trust ultimately is in God. That we have an untouchable and we have indescribable riches that are coming to us. That's our attitude. But, but not only the poor, James addresses the poor. Interesting, he gives one verse to the poor and he commits the next two to the rich. He says not only the attitude of the poor, but let's talk about the attitude of the rich. And let's be honest, very few of us would consider being on our flesh being rich a trial. I mean, if you were going to sign up for trials... Let me win the lottery. I don't play the lottery, just so you know. Let me win the lottery and let me see how I'll do. I'll take that test. I mean, most of us in our flesh, that's what we would say. If we were signing up for trials and you see, have nothing, have a whole lot, well, I'll take B. Let's try it. But James is saying that's a trial. And all throughout the Bible, listen to me, the Bible is very clear. Having a lot is a much greater test than having nothing. James, James and other writers speak very strongly to our riches. There, there's disagreement here in, in verse 10 over whether a, this rich person is a believer or not. I believe that James is addressing a rich brother. I believe he's addressing a rich believer here. Jesus would have known, I mean, James would have known Jesus' teaching about the dangers that wealth brings. Look with me at Luke 18 for a second. Turn over to Luke 18, verse 18 just to speak to the, the, the trial of, of riches. And again, remember, I would say 99% of us in this room, if not all of us, would qualify as rich. So don't, don't, think you're, don't, don't let your mind think of other people when you hear this. You look at yourself through this. A ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. 
And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Not impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, but it is difficult. Why? Because what our trust really is in is in our wealth, is in our riches. Our riches. You look at 1 Timothy 6. Those who desire to get rich pierce them, face many troubles and pierce themselves with many pangs. A lot of what you see on television, a lot of what we see on television, people getting into trouble. Why? Because they're chasing after a dollar. And they do a lot of unscrupulous things. Why? To get rich. James makes it very clear. Other writers, our riches, Satan uses them to distract us and detract us from the real mission. And because of this, James is warning not only the poor, but he's warning the rich about its dangers. And he does so by addressing its brevity and the lack of its ability to really prevent trials. Look, whether rich or poor, you go through trials. Let's be honest. Whether you're rich or poor, trials are still tough. You lose a loved one, guess what? All the riches in the world don't take that away. You, you go through a trial, all the riches in the world aren't solving that. They're not bringing the person back. And, and James says trials cannot be avoided or solved simply because you're rich. That's a fallacy. That's fleshly wisdom. If I just had more, I wouldn't be dealing with this. You'd be dealing with this, it would just have more zeros. I, I remember my dad one time, there's a guy named Jimmy Crowder, huge contractor in Tallahassee. And my dad was talking to him, and Jimmy Crowder said this. He said, Terry... I have, the same, I have the same bills, I have the same struggles you have. He said, mine just have more zeros attached to them. It's true. That's true. The, the word rich here, listen to me. He's saying riches aren't going to take it away. You go through a trial, riches aren't going to take it away. The word rich here literally means, listen to this, one who does not need to work for a living. That's what this word rich means. This is somebody who doesn't need to work for a living. And that's what James is... I believe what James is saying here in his humiliation, it, it's twofold. It's twofold. Listen, number one, it points to somebody who potentially had their riches stripped away. One day those riches are going to be stripped away. And when they do, you glory in that humiliation. You glory in the fact that you can trust in your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just as you had when you had riches. But I think even more than that, James is saying the humiliation is this, that you use your riches to serve the poor that you, you be willing to bankrupt yourself on behalf of one another, that you be willing to associate with the poor. In that day, that wouldn't have gone on. He's saying you all in Christ were one family, whether rich, whether poor, you're one family. You go through life together. You look out for one another together. I, I, believe, I believe 2 Corinthians 8, 9 would, would come into play here. And, and, Jan, and Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord that though He was rich, He became poor, for your sakes, that through his poverty you might become rich. I believe that's part of what James is pointing to here, the humiliation. That you would use your riches, not for your own good, but for the good of others. That you would spend your riches, not on yourself and live it up yourself, but that you would, you would steward your riches so that you could look out for your other brothers and sisters in Christ. And in that, that would be humility. You, you have all this stuff, why aren't you living it up? Because I serve a Savior that one day... I'm going to get back more than anything I ever gave. I believe James is talking to a people here that realized that all blessings were from God, that it was all of grace, that they were not allowing their stuff to segregate the body, to divide the body, to, to bring in barriers. That this is a group of people that were sacrificially giving to one another, that if it's mine and you need it, you can have it. Because they knew, James tells them, all of their stuff is going to pass away in a moment. It's going to be gone. And James is saying, he again, just like to the poor, he's pointing to an attitude. He's pointing to an attitude. He's reminding them of the sacrificial mercy that they were loved with and given by the Savior. And, and what he's reminding them of is this, is that in the gospel, both the rich and the poor have found something of incomparable value. And they're willing to forsake everything on this side of eternity for that. 
It's spiritual wisdom towards riches. It's what would Paul, it's what would drive Paul in Philippians 3 to say, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul said, you can take away all of it. If it means intimacy with Christ, I'll take it. And I think that's the point. I think, I think James remembers the, the picture in Matthew 13, when Jesus told the parable about the man who found the treasure in the field. He finds the treasure in a field and he goes home and sells everything he has and he goes and buys that field. He became rich. I mean, he became poor. Why? Because he had found something that made him infinitely rich. In the gospel, you and I have found something that makes us infinitely rich and we're willing to forsake everything else for that treasure. We're willing to leave everything else behind for that treasure. And as the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, the rich brother forgets his earthly riches. He lives as if they weren't there. He lives for others instead of himself. That's the humiliation. Why? Because of the gospel. Because as he has a Savior who was infinitely rich and was willing to humble himself that we would be made rich through his humility. That's the humiliation here. Look with me at Matthew 23, 12, just for a second to try to make this point. Matthew 23, verse 12. Jesus says, and he's exposing Phariseeism. Look what he says. He says, starting in verse 11, But the greatest among you shall be your leader. I mean, shall be your servant. Hello, the flesh is coming out there. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the humiliation? Living as if you weren't? Living indifferently than what you could? Listen, what James is reminding us of and reminding his readers is this. The rich brother stands at the foot of the cross and realizes that the poor brother stands right alongside of him, equal, just as honored in Christ. Rich and poor, just as honored in Christ. Equal footing. That's the humiliation. In a sense, the rich man is humiliated in that he's lowered to his right standing. He's lowered to an equal status with every other believer in Jesus Christ, regardless of his wealth. And that's exactly the point that James makes in verses 10 and 11, that the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and the flower falls off and his beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man will, will do so in the midst of his pursuits. He'll fade away. We need gospel wisdom. We need to look at things through the lens of the gospel so that we will see ourselves rightly, we'll see our stuff rightly, but that we'll see one another rightly. And what James says here is totally counterculture. Our flesh, my flesh is not going to wake up in the morning and feel this way on its own. And James is saying, no, no, look at the wisdom of the gospel. Live the wisdom of the gospel. And the gospel, what James is saying and what he's teaching us is the great leveler. It elevates the poor and rejected, and it humbles the rich. Why? Because at the foot of the cross, we're equal. And I I pray that we, as a church, would reflect this. I pray that as we go out into the world individually, we would reflect that. That there would not be people that are too low for us to associate with, too proud to associate with, that we wouldn't in our mind allow our minds to be filled with all these things as to why they're like that and why I'm like this and why they deserve that and why I deserve... Look, I, I'm, I'm human with you. I can, I can give you 500 reasons why not to do something. And the Bible gives me many reasons why to do something. I pray that in our neighborhoods, at work, in our homes, I pray that our students, you teach your kids at school, find that kid that nobody else likes and be his friend. Find that kid that sits at the end of the table that, that maybe is a little different. Be his friend. That, that's the stuff that people are going to remember for the rest of their life. That's the stuff that's going to change someone's life for the rest of their life. And why? All the credit goes to the gospel because at the, in the gospel, there's no rich and poor. We're leveled. We're all beggars. I, I pray that we would not allow the things to segregate this body the way that the world allows things to segregate the body. 
to bring dividers, no matter how we're different. When one hurts, we all hurt. When one does well, we all do well. Rightly, what James is saying is have a right perspective to stuff, whether you have little or whether you have a lot. May trials mature this, that we would have a right perspective of stuff. And lastly, lastly, not only does trials mature our earthly view of things, trials mature our eternal perspective on things. And that's what he says in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What, what James says here is a fitting conclusion to verse 2. It's all the same language. Perseverance, trials, it's all the same. Blessed, it's all the same. Here, this is why hang, why hang in there? Because in the end, God will reward you. In the end, you will be rewarded. And he's speaking to eternal security. Don't get this picture in mind. I know we, we have this picture in mind that well, my crown is going to have 8 rubies and yours is going to have 15 Ultimately, what he's pointing to is eternal life, salvation. The assur- Why do we endure? Because we are assured an award, a reward that will more than make up for anything that we sacrificed on this side of eternity. We win. And again, notice what James says. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. He doesn't say blessed is the man who escapes. Blessed is the man who avoids. He said blessed is the person who endures. And trials, going through trials, can only be considered joy when they are effectively endured. You're only going to learn the lesson when you effectively endure them. It's not by taking shortcuts. It's not by cheating. It's enduring. And and the blessing is guaranteed. Trials bring about this blessing. Time and time again, we've said it, the Sermon on the Mount, James is building his theology based on the Sermon on the Mount. The, the The blessing is guaranteed. Here's what James is not saying. It doesn't mean that we won't fail at certain times. Here's what James is not saying, that you have to be perfect. We all fall short. We all fall short. This person standing behind this pulpit falls short. Listen, what James is saying is your failures can be repented of, and your failures can be redeemed by a glorious God. Endure. Get up. Brush yourself off. Repent. Move on. God's grace is more than sufficient for our failures. What James is saying here is the one who perseveres is somebody who characteristically endures. More often than not, they endure. More often than not, they stay the course. That is the overarching theme of their lives. It's like this. Raise your hand and anybody anybody in here ever told a lie? All right, the, the eight of you that didn't raise your hand, you're liars. But listen, that's not the theme of your life, though. Nobody walks around saying you're a liar, I hope. There's a difference between occasionally lying and and being a habitual liar. There's a difference here between occasionally failing and not, not trying, not persevering at all. What James is saying here is the person here that he's that he's saying faith allows you to endure. Your faith allows you to endure. You will fail at times, but you characteristically endure. And look what happens. If that happens, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The word, the word uh, approved there, some of your, some of your versions may t- say tested. It literally points to a fire that would prove the genuineness of a metal. It's what he speaks of in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. says, We rejoice, though now for a little while we have all faced trials of various kind, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then he says, In the end, it will result in the praise, the genuineness of your faith, and the praise and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's proving the genuineness. It's bringing out the genuineness. It's maturing it. And, and notice, he doesn't say it's earned. Salvation isn't earned. It's given. It's grace. And listen, the readers of James would have had in their mind in that day the games when a person won, there would be a wreath, a wreath placed around their head. That's what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 9.24 when he says, run in such a way to win the prize. Endure. Endure. And at the end of our trials, at the end of everything we face, listen to me, God will meet us believers with eternal life. And and when he does that, it will all have been worth it. 
every single thing would have been worth it. Whatever we go through on this side of eternity will, will pale in comparison to eternity with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I do not consider the present sufferings worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. It will be worth it. And that is the overall purpose here. James is writing to encourage believers to endure faithfully. Not just puddle through it, endure faithfully. Contemplating heavenly rewards. Contemplating all that God has in store for us. Contemplating all the promises that God has in store for us. And, and even Jeremiah, listen to, what, listen to what Jeremiah says as we close. Jeremiah 9, 23. You can write it down, I'll read it. Thus says the Lord, listen to this. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him, bo let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You know how the poor man can exalt in his trials because he can boast in the infinitely rich Savior that he has in Jesus Christ. You know how the rich man can be humiliated in his riches because he doesn't boast in those. He boasts in the infinite riches that await him through his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance, 1 Peter 1, 4, that is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. And we have to be a people who disciplines ourselves to look at everything through the lens of the gospel, through that lens, that there is a reward waiting on me. You ask, you ask professional athletes, you ask any athlete, why do they train? Why do they, why do, they do that? Because they want to win. They want the prize. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're going through today, endure. Whatever you're going through today, fix your eyes on Jesus. When we come across people, look at them through the lens of the gospel. Saved, unsaved. A relationship with Jesus Christ or no relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at them that way. Whatever, when people are different, when they're different than us, may we look at them through the lens of the cross. May we be a people who lives by the standards of the word based on the other than the standards of the world. Might we be a people who honestly appraise ourselves in light of the gospel and not think too highly of ourselves. I close with this, Matthew 16, 24 and 25. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. I pray that we would be that type of people. I pray that we would be willing to lose our life on this side of eternity. Why? Because we found eternal life through Jesus Christ.